Lovely. Welcome to the uh, second of these uh, workshoppy breakout type sessions. Um, this one is on how um, digital technology is changing how um, uh, organizational and business models uh, uh, in the uh, in the arts, and also the impact on uh, collaboration within arts organizations. Um, the format for this, if those of you who are in the room here before, we're going to do a similar format. Um, to before, which is that we're going to uh, hear some contributions from our uh, excellent panel speakers who I'll introduce shortly, and then we'll have some discussions um, on our tables, and then we'll break to a more open uh, conversation with questions and answers as well. Um, uh, and just to say, if, if, any of the, if any of the people, hands up who was in the session in here before, um, those of you who can bear, have, uh, those of you who get through the day, and come to all three sessions that I'm hosting, I will send you a present in the mail. Um, I, I, that's, that's not a joke, it's just that I, I'm very grateful for your coming to our sessions. I've, I've got a, um, I, 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 you'll have to email me your, your postal addresses and I'll send you something quite interesting and relevant to digital arts stuff. So that's a bit of incentives um, for, for staying in here. So um, on this session on business models, we've got three great speakers. The first is uh, Laura Sillers, who's the artistic director of Site Gallery, which is in Sheffield. Then we have uh, Skinder Hundal, who's chief executive of the New Art Exchange in Nottingham. And finally, on the end, we have Cam Starr, who, amongst other things, um, uh, works at Playgen and also runs a festival called Digital Shoreditch. And they're all going to talk at different angles on this question of how technology is helping us innovate the way we do um, our business. And so, um, without further ado, Laura, please. Okay, so um, I'm just going to start with a, what I think is possibly the key principle we need to think about when we're looking at our business models at the moment. Be the best version of yourself that you can be. So that's a very simple statement, but I think if we just hold that in our minds, it gives us something to work with while we're operating a lot inside a completely changing environment on many, many levels that affects all of our business models at different times and different ways. Um, I'm just listening to the, um, the bells. It's, it's quite a thing to compete with. Um, when we talk about business models, and I think we should also think about the context for why we're obsessively talking about business models at the moment. Lucky it's one o'clock. Has it finished? <laughs> <laughs> um, we're talking about business models a lot at the moment because things are changing. Every day in the news, it's HMV, it's you know an airline company. It's not just the arts business where business models are important and changing and an issue. And one of the things for arts organisations is that usually we're triple bottom line organisations. Absolutely, our finances are imperative, but our artistic programme and our social impact is equally imperative. So I sort of drew out six points that might be worth thinking about within our various different parts of our business models. Obviously, digital technology gives us the opportunity to save money in our financial elements through new systems, processes, blah, blah, blah. Also potentially gives us new opportunities to make money 
through um, our online shops and all of those different things that many of us have. And I think it's probably worth saying, I, lo I looked at the list of people in this room today, 50% of us are working in arts organisations. Most of us are running very complex um, businesses with many, many micro-businesses inside them. And I think we ha actually have some real, really great experience and knowledge that we can use when thinking about the problems that we face, and not just that we face, but that other people face. So financial is one thing. Artistic, we have a particular currency and an economy when we're looking at our artistic programs. On the one hand, we need to maintain credibility, and that is a key currency that we're working with. Also, I think we're working in an economy of experience inside our artistic part of our business models. And that means we're competing against other kinds of experiences, but also we need to be damn sure that the experiences we're creating for people are really, really good. Um, in terms of the social element of our business models, most of us are involved in and carrying phenomenal networks. Even, so, so Site Gallery, we are a, um, a, in, based in Sheffield, we're bricks and mortar, we're um, mid-scale, small-scale visual arts organisation, but every month over 104 different countries have people following us through our website, through our social media networks, um, and they, what are we giving them if they're visiting us from a distance as well as visiting us physically? Then I think the final economy that we're working within that we shouldn't ignore is um, the goodwill economy. We rely on a huge amount of positive spirit. For, the arts, for arts organizations, time is not just money. Time is something else. And those are things that when we're thinking about digital, we should bear in mind, not just can we sell a few more books from our online bookshop. Um, I think once you've got that picture in your head, um, one of the things that is absolutely imperative when thinking about our digital business models is the fact it's the same as anything else. The thing that we work with is our people. So um, Site Gallery, alongside Lighthouse in Brighton, Spike Island in Bristol, Caper in London, we were one of the groups of eight projects that developed one of the first digital R&D projects with Nesta Arts Council and AHRC. And that was the area that we wanted to look at most. If everything that we do is driven by people, what do we need to do to enable those people to perform differently in this new environment? And I think arts organizations are phenomenal deliverers. They're phenomenal planners. But I think what they're not necessarily at the moment is phenomenal developers. And that's something that certainly as we move forward in our sector, we're going to have to work more at thinking about maybe only 10% of what we develop will turn into something. But we need to resource that 90% of testing and playfulness. I think I'm going to end there. But just to say, when looking at our business models, it's more or less the same as looking at any element of what we do. And we really need to know who we are where we're going, but I think the question that we've got at the moment is we need to test quite carefully the how part of what we do, and we need to be open to new 
methods of getting there. Thank you, Laura. Skinder? Thank you. Um, thanks, Rowan. Um, yes, we were one of the eight um, as part of the Nesta Digital R&D programme. So we've got a whole range of distractions today with the sounds in Manchester. Wonderful. Um, and um, I want to share our story um, to give you an idea of um, our perspective on business model. I want to start, though, by thinking about what we mean by business model. And I think that, um, from our perspective, business model is very much about creating a better place. So that obviously hasn't happened just yet, but we're looking to make that happen. And when we talk about that, from our perspective, it is in totality in regards to the future. And I, I came across uh, a wonderful book by Hans Ulrich Orbist, um, looking at um, everything you wanted to know about curating. And seeing as our project was about toppling the power dynamics of uh, curating space with audiences and artists, um, I thought these were quite interesting to give a context about future. Here they come. The future is going nowhere without us. The future always flies in under the radar. The future is a large pharmacy with a memory deficit. The future is our own wishful thinking. So the context of uh, the future is, is intriguing. And in, in, in my opinion, in my experience, I feel that we live in three triangular dimensions um, of all equal significance. And that is the physicality of how we meet, um, how we dream and think, um, and how we spend time in that reflective moment. And now, increasingly, is the virtual and digital space in which we spend a lot of our times socializing um, and being professional and so forth. And this time and space contraction that's happening um, is, is creating uh, a space for opportunity and possibility. Um, there, is a, there is a blurring of role clarities in terms of who we are and what our expectations are between artist, audience, curator, gallery space and marketplace. So when we thought about business model within our project um, and within our organization, we looked at it as a total system, creating a perfect world, in fact. And I remember at the launch of Culture Cloud, it felt like that. Um, I'll talk about that in just a moment. But in terms of a total system, um, with regards to what we're trying to create and what Culture Cloud was, it was looking at the relationship between the artist, the audience, the curator, and looking at how that power dynamic would work to create a new marketplace, uh, a place where new exchanges would happen, uh, where new transactions would happen. So from a transactional kind of culture, moving to an interactional culture, and then back to a transactional culture, um, and that transaction wasn't about making money, and for us, business model isn't about making money. It's about creating a total system of sharing values and sharing experiences, sharing knowledge, sharing wealth, and looking at the aesthetics that come out of those processes in terms of the, the complexities of art. Um, so what was Culture Cloud? Well, it was a partnership with ArtFinder and nine to 10 different um, partners nationally across the country. Um, it was about redesigning how to curate and empower both the artist and the audience in particular, yet involve the curator, not take away in this new business model the curator's perspective. And so when we were thinking through the project, it was very important that as part of it, we would have some learnings about 
what the expectation might be, what the challenges might be for a curatorial space or a curator, and how the artist and audience could be empowered to take control of the destiny, to be more businesslike, to be more entrepreneurial even. And this was a challenge. Um, I would say that there were several lessons we learned in this process. Um, and the lessons I'd, I'd like to share was that actually now, what made we, the, the pilot quite successful, I would say, was that we had around a thousand submissions um, across the country through a digital platform. A digital platform accelerated the opportunity for that engagement to happen. And the partnership nationally uh, was based on our physical relationships. So uh, although the digital allowed for that acceleration, it was the physical relationships that we had with our partners, the trust we had between each other, the friendship that we had between each other as well, that allowed for so many submissions to come through. And I thought the actual simplicity and transparency of the process and, the, and the, uh, the modes of communication that we use were really important. I remember referring to um, Google at one stage and thinking with one of our um, curators at the gallery that the simplicity of Google, it's just a letterbox and you type in whatever you type and you get an answer. And so we wanted to create a simplistic, simplistic model to engage and we, we felt we achieved that. The exhibition itself we thought was quite a successful um, model in the end, in the sense that we had from a thousand, a hundred then selected by the curators, and then the audience would then engage through a digital platform and then select um, the final 40 that would then enter the gallery space. And I think the gallery itself um, during that period had um, the highest number of, second highest number of people that it ever had in terms of a launch. Um, so it was a successful project. The critical mass and networks through the digital platform allowed for more people to then enter the space. Um, we had over 40,000 engagements online. Um, you know, if you look at our Facebook and Twitter following together, it's probably five, 6,000. Um, and here we were having 40,000 interactions over a space of three to four weeks, and they would then inform the, who would enter the space. So, Again, the power dynamic within this business model was, was given out to the audience. And that was a big risk because there were many artists uh, within that um, who, who would feel that, um, that they should be represented um, in that process um, in terms of having an exhibition at New Art Exchange. Some of them didn't come through. Some of them did come through. Um, but it was also in the onus of the artist to play an active role in the marketplace as well. And there was a challenge around this, a value system as to what is the artist's role here? Am I a business or am I an artist or am I both? Um, and I think there were some questions that we, 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 we challenged ourselves with. Um, and this was a business model and it was an experiment. Um, it was an experiment really to explore how this one approach to curating space could work and compare and contrast against a wider model of your conventional curation. I think in the end, if I were to look at you know, some of the problems and difficulties that we faced in the project, I would say that did the digital space really give meaning to the exchange between audience, voter, and the artwork? And I would say there's a challenge there still to be resolved. Um, although we were very 
pleased with the results, I think there is a deeper meaning that needs to be understood. So the analysis of that data is something really, really important to get right going forward. I think the other thing about um, the digital is, is making sure that, that in a process like that, this, it doesn't just become a competition. There's just one or two winners. That actually it becomes, again, something that actually sits well with our ethos and values as an organization. So we don't lose track of focus of our purpose as an organization in, these, in this process. Another thing I thought that was really interesting um, during this process of exploring the digital within a gallery space was actually looking at how, how we could um, compare um, a, how work was presented digitally and physically. I think when we were judging the results, there was comment made by curators that actually the, physical, uh, the physicality of, of observing the art was more important Again, the digital was really, really helpful. I think, okay, I'm going to finish. Um, I think the key things going forward is that we understand the context and environment um, that we're in, and that we design models that complement the values and ethos of our vision in terms of business model, and that we understand the gravitational constant within this in order that we get the forces of attraction right between our artist, audience, and curator, and again, the broader marketplace that we are trying to create. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Ked. And Cam, finally. Hello. <laughs> Hi there. Beautiful audience and a very, very fantastic room to be in. Uh, I'm honoured to be here and actually humbled by the list of folks who are here. Um, so I'm Cam and I'm going to talk for a, for a few minutes about a couple of things I've been doing the last few years. Um, one of my ventures is, is, is PlayGen, which creates games on issues that matter. So whether it's career decisions or it's teenage pregnancy or it's attitude towards domestic violence or how you might better manage your day or connecting artists together, those are the things I've been making games about for the last decade or so uh, with PlayGen. Um, and as a part of that, there's a lot of partnerships that, that we form and we've, um, I haven't counted but I think we've probably working with, or have worked in the last 10 years with about 40 universities, which is quite unique um, uh, in the way that we're very, very research friendly. We love research and we love sharing and we like, we like things that we do to be based on things that others have found out, um, especially academically and applying those in the real world. Um, but PlayGen to one side, I started a project called Digital Shortage some three years ago with this desire to uh, create a truly open uh, and non-corporate festival that, uh, with a tagline celebrating outstanding creativity. Uh, and the idea was very much born out of um, small gatherings at first and a, you know, a modest first year. Uh, uh, last year we had 10 days of continuous events uh, with over 10,000 people taking part and one and a half million uh, interactions on the web. Um, and this year we are planning something probably even bigger, although I don't know how much, how big this monster is going to get. Um, 
it's quite interesting because the, the festival is, is open. Uh, it's open to uh, anyone. In fact, it's open to you. If you'd like to talk at the festival, you will have to hurry, though. We are closing submissions on Friday. Um, but uh, if, if you're interested to talk about anything, whether it's a technical issue, whether it's to do with the business, whether it's the creative side, or whether it's society, those are our four main tracks. Uh, I urge you to go to digitalshortage.com and, 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 and submit something. Um, that to one side, the, the experience of running Digital Shortage and running it um, profitably, even though we're not for profit, so we have a bit of an issue there, uh, but running it profitably year on year uh, has really been around creating something that people want um, and aligning our product with the audience as, as much as we can. Now, what's interesting in, in the digital realm is how it's affected uh, our very much analog world. Uh, and, and it's probably one of the key places that it's had the biggest impact has been the music industry and how music has fundamentally changed. And artists, and, and I, um, if, I, if I may be so bold, could, could you raise your hand if you bought a CD in, in, uh, in the last month? Wow. Okay. Um, we are, I think, on maybe 5 or 10% there, and I, th and I would imagine that, that that number would have been far higher a few years ago. What seems to have shifted is everyone, is, is, this is the notion of live. Live really matters. People being together really matters. That's why you're here. Otherwise, you could just go online and f fill in something on a forum. So if you have an arts organization which is doing stuff, that is live, actually, you know what, this is our time, uh, because this stuff matters a lot more. And what digital does, as, as other speakers have alluded to, is, is it, it's an enabler, it's a tool that allows us to reach out. I think in a, in a, in a digital business model, uh, at least from my perspective, there are two critical elements. One is content, and the other is connection. Uh, and you can use digital for both the generation of content and, and for display of content and for, for, for the connections that it brings. But that physical relationship that uh, uh, Skinder talked about is, is absolutely paramount in convincing people to part with their cash. Now, why would you do that? Um, we, we started Digital Shortage without a grant. We, haven't, we don't get grants. Um, it's just not the way that that works. It works as a business. Uh, we create a product that people want and they sign up to it um, and, and, and they pay for it. But, but they only do that because me and, and, and my colleagues are absolutely obsessed uh, with what we call the art of conversion. Um, now, if you're not familiar with the art of conversion or what conversion is, it is the, the, the process with which you take someone from a, a mere interested, or even just walking by, to being an active customer. Um, and, and you know, when, when you continue with conversion, you're building loyalty, and that's year after year. Now, this art of conversion has its deepest roots, and the most interesting academic work is in the areas of influence, persuasion, and behavioral economics. Um, so if you want to convince people to buy whatever it is you're selling, I would start with keying up on things like behavioral economics, influence, and the art of conversion. Now, having said that, um, again, the list of organizations that are here today are, are astounding. There's an incredible amount of value 
that's locked in your organizations, which you may not be aware of. Um, this hidden value is something that you need to explore um, if you're not doing already, and that multiple value propositions for the things that you create. So if you have something that is happening live, creating other media and other mediums with which people can consume. Now we go back to psychology and this whole notion that, that, that um, if you create things that people want, you'll succeed. If you put that at the sort of central point of um, um, the, the, the propositions that you create, um, think back, and, and actually this is quite apt with relation to the previous um, session that was here, for those of you who were here around user-generated content. Um, we like ourselves, we're important to us, uh, and so any, in any way or shape or form that you can allow your audience uh, to be more than just an audience, to be a participant and an active one, um, that's a fantastic direction for, for anyone wanting to explore this bit. Um, when it comes to trying the things out, um, we're very fortunate because we're very small. There's only a handful of us or more, um, and so we can decide things very quickly, and we can try things. I imagine in some of the organizations, trying something would require several years of planning. You probably know what that's all about. But in, in, in the same way, if you can convince the leadership, if you are the leadership, then this is for you, but if you're not, then you need to convince the leadership that you must try things out. Just try it. And what am I talking about? Well, if you haven't seen it already, get on the business model generator. It's called Business Model Canvas. It's an open source thing that was created by 450 entrepreneurs who worked together to make this canvas. It's simple, it's very easy to do, it only takes as long as you want it to take. And it allows you to explore a business model and in all its dimensions. Do this, do this kind of hackathon thing, do the jam, the makeathon, take a bit of time and actually go through this process a few times. And with what you've created, just try it. I, I, I've been a supporter of, of, of many of the arts organizations in London for, for a number of years, and it still is incredible to me that I go there year after year after year, and it, there's no new thing really to try out. There's no new business models, there's no incrementals, there's no added conversion. Um, I, I don't guess that there are, my guess is that there are plenty of people with ideas, it's just when it comes to trying it, there seems to be a barrier. And that, that conversation needs to be had. Um, so being that truly open in, in partnerships, focusing on the leadership, giving you the space to try things out, because it's all good and well talking about it. And from my experience, nothing that we just talk about ever really happens is when you actually do it, even in a small way, the people take note, they take notice, and they give you the space to, 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 to carry out and to transform something. Brilliant, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, Cam. So we're gonna transform the room slightly. So we've heard from three different perspectives on this overall question and area. And so what we're gonna do now is just in our tables, we'll have a, um, feel free to just have a conversation amongst yourselves on what has come out from the panel contribution so far, or what's on your mind with regards to this whole area of the relationship between technology and business models. 
So um, there you go. Have fun. And we'll take some questions afterwards. Okay, great. Thank you, everyone. And apologies again for cutting off what is probably um, a really burgeoning conversation. So we're going we're gonna to take some questions or comments, but um, with your permission, I'm going to ask the first question, if that's all right. I'm going to ask, because something that um, Laura said in her, uh, in her introduction around how she's felt that um, people within cultural organizations aren't necessarily good developers, um, and I wanted her to sort of and that feels like a really fertile point, and I wanted to. My understanding, uh, Laura, of that was not necessarily on the creative side of uh, the organisation, but on the organisational practice. That when it comes to being uh, working in new ways, becoming more entrepreneurial in the broader sense, people within arts organisations. Um, I summarise it a little bit that they're so good at what they what they do, they don't know how to do anything else. Is that what you meant, or? I think there's an element of, what, in lots of ways, what I was getting at is um, we are, arts, for happenstance, I should say, we had, the process was we had two digital residents, technologists, in all of three of the arts organisations. And one of the things that they fed back to us was that they were astounded by how much delivery the arts organisations did. And one of them made the point that every technology project it ever worked on had come in after the deadline. Well, when you're putting on an exhibition or an event or a theatre production or whatever, you don't miss the deadline. It's not an option. So, you know, we, we know how to plan, prepare, get things ready, and then we know how to churn them out, deliver them, run them. But what we don't have, and it's not necessarily we're not good at it, it's just that maybe we haven't put our mind to it yet of how we grow things, nurture things, test things that don't necessarily go into the planning, production, delivery cycle. So for, for the Happenstance project, we were looking at something called Agile Project Management Philosophy, which is rather than your big prints to process where you've got a big Gantt chart with all your milestones and you know when there's a, a mini crisis moment and you gather your team together and it's like sort this out. Agile philosophy um, values individuals and interactions over processes and tools. It, it values working together rather than comprehensive documentation, customer collaboration over contract negotiation, and responding to change rather than following a plan. And using that kind, different kind of process of making things, where you might make many, many small things rather than one massive thing, and where you might learn something in one area of your company that you can then pull through to another, whether it's like one thing we did after the Happenstance project was we created a tweeting shelf in our shop which had a personality and a character, and he tweeted every day about the kind of shoes that people were wearing as they came into the shop and what sorts of objects was on, on that shelf that day. It's sort of a stupid, crazy, silly thing to do. But on the other hand, it's about looking at all the small things that you can do that are slightly different, testing them out somewhere, like a shelf, where maybe it doesn't matter so much, and exploring that, developing that, and then seeing if maybe you've grown a new way of working or a new set of tools or a new set of skills that you can accelerate into another part of your business. So that's kind of what I was getting at. It's that 
we need to give ourselves capacity and time, not just in our artistic programme, but in our marketing, in our fundraising, in everything that we do, and make sure that we're sharing that knowledge inside our organisations. And what happens if you don't make capacity and time for it? Because that would be, that, be the, the complaint. I don't have that capacity and time. So what do you think the risk of non-action is in, the, in that regard? I think it's stasis, because... The, whole, the public value of um, arts organisations now is absolutely f fundamentally shifting. And as a sector, we have to address that. We have to re-articulate what we're here for. And if we just keep going the way that we're going, delivering output, delivering you know, planning, output, planning, output, we're not giving ourselves any room to change. So I think that it's fundamental that we move from that 50-50 into a more sort of balanced pie chart where we're giving ourselves that space to develop. Great, thank you, Laura. We've got some questions. I've got a hand here. If you just put your hands up and I'll clock you. If you have any burning questions, we'll just take this chat here. Um, I'm Chris Bilton from the University of Warwick and we worked with um, Laura at, on the Happenstance Project. And I think that the distinction that you've made between the different um, pressures on the organisation is very important here because one of the reasons why arts organisations, and we, we did observe this thing, that arts organisations uh, maybe not so, have to plan everything, as you say, and don't have the space to risk. It's partly to do with, with um, funding context and also often to the scale of projects involved. And what we observed with the technology people was that they were much more able to break things down into, into small steps, into, into fast fail, quick easy prototyping, try something out, doesn't work, doesn't matter, which as you say, if you're doing an exhibition, you can't do. So it, it could partly be that, and I think the other aspect is, is that um, arts organisations are of course extremely good at innovating and taking risks and working with technology, but tend to do that more in their, um, in their artistic practice. So there is this kind of schizoid, very highly experimental, innovative, creative, wild, silly, crazy, stupid stuff happening in the gallery space and then quite often quite boring stuff happening in offices. Any comments or new questions? Anything that came out of your roundtable chats that was particularly pertinent or interesting? You kind of all had dull chats. There's one, there's one in the front. Um, my name's Danny, I'm a founder of a uh, cinema technology startup. Um, and I guess which point you were asking to make is, is that if, if, if the platform for innovation doesn't exist within an organization or is supported of external people that are innovating by, by an organization, then, then I, I can't really see how things are going to move forward much. It gets, uh, innovation gets talked about quite a lot, um, but whether it happens in reality, I'm not sure. It's really a question, it's more just a point. <laughs> Am I allowed to respond to that? Yeah. Well, one of, what I wanted to say is, um, we just had a chat about this before, as arts organisations we need to not think that we have to find all of the answers inside our own, our own organisations. We need to find the answers through dialogue with different people. And in that, one of the greatest challenges, and this is what our project responded to, is that we're like, because credibility is such a, a key thing, risk-taking is, you know, you have to be really careful with what you put into the public domain. 
I think. That's one of the historic challenges for arts organisations. So what they tend not to do is tell people what their problems are. Actually, their problems, if you can articulate your problem really well, that can be a really interesting starting point to work with technologists, developers, to test and play with the problem, rather than saying, at, at the end, I want this end product which is going to do X, Y, and Z, and you've overspecced the outcome to such a degree that there's no flexibility and creativity, and inevitably the deadline gets missed and morale drops around the project. So I actually do believe there's all sorts of opportunities for innovation, but it does require the arts organisations to look at themselves slightly differently and look more carefully at their problems and think, rather than those being problems, they're actually interesting starting points. Yes. Uh, just a quick question for the panel about um, within the National R&D Fund, um, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the kind of value that a technology company or an academic might bring to the project. But Laura, you kind of talked a little bit about the kind of intense value of experience and those kind of connections and also, yeah, so the kind of content and connection side of things. And is there any examples that you can talk about where, um, where you're looking at um, how, what value that has as a kind of bus as a business? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So rather than the weighting being put on the kind of uh, IP, if you like, developed by the technology partner, actually the kind of intrinsic value of arts organisations and how, uh, whether that contributes to business planning and so on. Personally, I think it absolutely does. And that intrinsic value, you know, we create extraordinary experiences that remain in people's memory for the rest of their lives. That's fundamental. That's, that's mostly why we're here, all of us. Um, and that's an absolutely fascinating thing for technologists to get under the skin of, which often they don't have the opportunity to do. If you're making a big software project for a bank, you, you know, it's got very particular kinds of um, structures around it. So very, very quickly, one of the outcomes of our happenstance project was two of our residents created a tiny tweeting printer and when Bill Drummond did a project, I can see Sensoria here in the, in the audience, we did a project with Bill Drummond together and he, um, went, he created these scores for Sheffield and they were, he went around the city and there was all these different stories and we sent off these um, sixth form students to follow one of the scores. They had to go to the bus station, get on a bus to anywhere, listen to the sound of the bus, look at the yellow paint, and all the way along they tweeted their experience and it printed out in the, in the gallery from the tiny weeny little printer. And at the end we'd created this almost poetic document that captured a happening experience as it happened. And it's those sorts of little bits of magic that can be enabled when you, when you open up all of the processes that go into making these experiences happen. Any final comments from Skindo or Cam? I mean, for, from the, the question was around sort of the value base. I mean, the starting point from our organization is always around the ethos, the vision, the principle of what we're trying to achieve, which is um, around sort of stimulating new perspectives about the value of diversity in art and society. 
Now, if digital technology platforms can improve this um, and accelerate this, this is a great, great achievement. I think with Culture Cloud, we, interestingly, um, through the engagement, which in a way became like a digital open, engaged um, around 30% of the thousand from minority ethnic groups. So from, a, from, point of view, from our point of view, the technology firm sat well in terms of working with ourselves um, in achieving this. However, the collaboration wasn't just with the technology firm, it was also the history and relationship and contacts we had with other gallery spaces and other organizations which weren't technology firms. So again, the business model is about the totality of expertise and the roles that one another play with one, one another. Um, I think the, the, the trio of arts organization, research, and a technology partner is a, is a, is a big challenge to arts organizations to research organizations and to technology companies. Um, and, and how you manage that is absolutely critical. Um, what ideal, you know, in an ideal situation, um, you have the organizations working very, very tightly and closely together. Uh, in my experience, I'm not referring to this particular call, but in my experience, what tends to happen is the art organization has things that they want, and it's a very, very big list which kind of gets given to the, uh, to, to the researcher, which finds the bits that he or she is personally interested in and doesn't really have a direct link back to what, what the triple bottom line of the arts organization, which then gets handed over to the technology company that says, actually, I'm only going to do this part of it because, you know, it's only at this big grant. Um, I've seen that happen. And, and you know, that really the challenge of getting around that is to get everybody together more often and to, to communicate very clearly from the arts organization's perspective what is the absolute desired outcome and to keep that going all the way through so that what is delivered at the end of the process is something that, that, that is what you want because as the arts organization, it has to answer to you. And of course, this IP generated and wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody else started using it. Um, but don't lose sight of the fact that most developers that I've worked with have a particular love of something that they just want to do and that might not just align. So you have to have that vision uh, and the conviction uh, and the tenacity to just keep going back to that key thing that you want to do. And don't try and do a hundred things um, as was talked about before. Google's homepage is too complicated for most people. Um, so just, just bear that in mind and, and, and you know, Great advice, keep it simple. Great, so thank you. That concludes this session. So um, I don't want to eat into your lunch break because that is what is in now. So um, thank you all for your attention this morning. A round of applause to all yourselves and the panel. And enjoy your lunch. <laughs>